Thank you, choir, but thank you, Victor Tan, for playing there, accompanying us. Randolph is uh, preparing the, someone to follow him when he eventually retires. Victor, keep playing that well, we might retire Randolph. <laughs> Our scripture is 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13 through 21. We are on a series entitled Defiant Hope. Sometimes we have a misunderstanding about hope that it just comes naturally and it's an emotion. But hope has to be fought for. Uh, hope has to stay afloat by the Word of God and the power of God's Spirit. We have looked at how hope uh, fights back against some of the discouraging things that Abraham hoped against hope had a child, and Job said, even though God should slay me, yet I will hope in him. Last week we saw that we were born again to a living hope, and that hope is uh, tested in trials, and today we continue our, our, our thoughts about hope. First uh, Peter 1, 13 and following. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, and be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had once you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, Live your lives as strangers here with reverent fear. For you know it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Though you believe through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead, and so your faith and hope are in God. The reading of God's word to God's people. Let's pray. Um, Father, we're grateful for your word, that you inspired it. Would you illuminate it today that our eyes might see beautiful things, that our wills might be enabled uh, to do beautiful things in your sight. And may you give us that, uh, that you might be glorified in the midst of this service in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. I know that you probably don't really ever connect the sermon to the title. And what I started to title the sermon was The Logic of Hope, or something like uh, The Mind That Hopes. Because when you talk about this passage, it is a logical conclusion that we're called to set our hope on the grace of God to be revealed to us. That in chapter 1, beginning with verse 1 and going through chapter 12, we have what are called in, in, indicatives. They're just facts. They happen to all of God's people. The facts are that you have been, by the mercy of God, been born again to a living hope through Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead, to an inheritance that will not fade. That inheritance is kept for you, and you are kept for that that. Uh, inheritance. That, those are the facts that we as believers uh, have to rely upon in our lives. Based on those facts, we come to a conclusion, therefore, live like this. 
So the imperatives, the commands of God, always follow the indicative, the facts of God. We are not God's children because we do this. We are God's children so we do this. And so when you read the Bible, some people think that you leave your mind at the door or you leave it in the car. And everything that we're going to do here today has to do with faith and belief and it doesn't address the mind. The only way that God gets to the heart is through the mind. It says in Romans chapter 12, it says to renew your minds. Don't be conformed to this age, but renew your minds and you'll transform your lives. And so this passage asks us to do some thinking, do some real thinking. If you still have your Bible open, it says, therefore, with minds that are alert, that really doesn't capture the imagery of the passage. The idea is captured by the King James where it says, gird up the loins of your mind. Don't you love that? Don't know what it means, but it sounds good, doesn't it? Gird up the loins of your mind. They, they wore long flowing robes like that. And if they were going to fight in battle or they're going to run or they were going to get down to really doing something serious, they would pull up their robes, tuck them into their belt, tie them in their belt around their waist so they were free to do it. Kind of like we would say we, we roll up our sleeves and we, and we start work. And what Peter is saying is I want you to gird up the loins of your mind and think about how hope affects your life. And how hope will affect you for the rest of your life. Uh, Peter here says, set your hope on the grace to be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Uh, Peter says to you that if you hope in calling God your Father, then live holy lives. And then Peter says, if you set your hope on Christ, then he better have the image of the Lamb of God in your mind. So we look at... Uh, Hope and how it relates to grace. Hope how it relates to holiness. And hope how it relates to the sacrifice of Christ. Set your hope on the grace of God that is revealed when the coming, with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first imperative following all of those facts is set your hope. Set your hope on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. How many of you make a trip and you're going to somewhere you've never gone before and the first thing you do is you get out your phone and you look at maps and you put in your destination, right? And that phone will start talking to you and if you get off and somebody will say, recalculating, recalculating, you know, and you want to silence her real quick, you know, uh, and you wonder where you go. But that, that lady or that gentleman keeps talking to you. Because she or he, whatever your map's voice is, wants you to reach your destination. And that's what Peter is doing. He says, set your hope on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is coming again. He came, he lived, he died, he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven, but he comes again to judge the living and the dead and to make the new heavens and the new earth. History is going somewhere. It's not circular. It's not mindless. It's not random. It's not a, a theologically evolutionary. It's going towards the return of Christ. 
And you have to recalculate almost daily. This is my destination that I'm going to. But he says, not only do you set your hope on Christ, you set your hope on the grace that we revealed with the coming of Christ. You set your hope on grace. When Jesus comes back, to, I said it just, he's going to judge the living and the dead. We're going to stand before God and give an account. We're going to call, we call on God who is our father, but he's a judge, it's impartial. And so what we need to do when we think about the coming of Christ as Christians is to realize that what we are looking forward to is grace. The undeserved merit, undeserved mercy of God. We want grace. We don't want God to come back and focus. We don't want to focus on justice and get what we deserve or come back and give us what we have merited, or come back and give us like an eternal paycheck that we've worked for, that we want and look and expect God to be gracious to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. David Strain, the first uh, Presbyterian church pastor in Jackson, calls this a climactic grace. That you and I know grace upon grace. That's what it says in 1 John. Grace upon grace. And when Jesus comes back, there's going to be a greater grace that we experience. And he went on to describe it like this. He said, that means that we won't get to heaven and we won't poke our neighbor and says, okay, this is what I finally got. I finally got what I deserve. All my sacrifices, all my giving up of the Sabbath days and all my tithing and all my Bible reading and everything that I've done, my mission trips and all that, I finally got my reward. That David says, that's not what we're going to do. That even when we are addressed as, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord, we're going to say, faithful Good and faithful servant. And then he says, I was in prison and you visited me. And I was sick and you came to see me. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was naked and you clothed me. And and the righteous say, when did we do that? The righteous, the redeemed, the believers are looking forward to grace. Now, when we talk about that, we also have to realize that the Bible does say a lot about rewards. But rewards are grace. Augustine, who Calvin and Luther both quoted a lot, St. Augustine, says that when God rewards us or gives us crowns, He's just crowning His own grace. God is crowning His own grace. And I've used this illustration before. That's the problem with having somebody who's been here 40 years. You might hear an illustration or two repeated. Uh, remember at Christmas time, we talk about how if you have little kids and they want to get you a present, and of course they, you know, they can't ride their bike to Walmart or wherever, you know, downtown to the jewelry store, and they don't have the money, and so you take them down there, you take them to Walmart, and you tell them, okay, pick out something for for me, and I'll pay for it, and then you get something like salt shakers, you know, or a chip and dip. I'm trying to think of what I got my mom, you know, or something, a truck or a basketball. 
and then you, you, you help, help the child wrap it, right? And you put it under the tree. And then on Christmas Day, you open it up and you go, Oh, look at the salt shaker I got. Thank you so much. What are you doing? You're praising your own grace. The child doesn't know or understand to a degree that they didn't do anything. And when we receive the rewards that are spoken of, we, we realize, what did we do? God did it through us. The second thing we do is uh, we not only set our hope on the grace to be revealed, we set our hope on the Father who is holy. Hope leads to holiness. It always does. You could go to several passages. First John 3, He who sets his eyes on Him who is pure, purifies Himself. As we look towards Jesus, the more we want to be like Jesus. And if your concept of hope and your concept of Christianity doesn't include holiness, then you have the wrong view. The Bible clearly says without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So you go, okay, what is holiness then? Holiness is to be set apart, to be distinct, to be different. And God says, be holy as I am holy. God is set apart. God is distinct. God is different. And as much as we are made in the image of God, God is not made in our image. He's different than us. And when you talk about the holiness of God, you not only talk about the set-apartness, the, the holy other, as Otto called it, you also think of purity. There's no darkness in Him. There's no sin in Him. There's no deceit in Him. And what holiness is, is it's what God is. The only attribute mentioned in multiple phrases is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And it's mentioned in Genesis, I mean, it's mentioned in Isaiah and it's mentioned in Revelation. God doesn't say love, love, love. I'm love, love, love. I'm patient, patient, patient. I'm powerful, powerful, powerful. That's hard to say. But anyway, he, he does say I'm holy, holy, holy. And you're to be holy like me. Because you're calling me your father. You're to be obedient children. We are the children of God. We have been adopted into the family. We have the great privileges of having a family of faith. We have the great honor of calling God Abba, Father. We have the ability every Sunday to say, Our Father who art in heaven. We realize our Father knows how to give good gifts to His children. And He won't give us a snake when we ask for a fish. And it says, J.I. Packer says in his great work, Knowing God, if you want to know how much people understand about Christianity, find out what they believe about God being their Father. It dominates the New Testament. But we're to be like God. I wish I had written down all the details, but I didn't. In uh, 2016, I think it was, in the Olympics, a man won the 1,500-meter, which is a metric mile. 
He had been to the Olympics in 2012, I think that would make the early, and hadn't medaled, but he came back in 2016, and he, and he won, first American to win it in a long time. And so when they were interviewing him on TV, what he does is he takes off his shirt, and you know what they're doing, they want you to see their tattoo. You know, they are their, their washboard stomach like mine, but anyway... He jerks off his T-shirt, and it says, like father, like son. His father had been in two Olympics. And what he wanted his whole life was to be like his dad and to be in two Olympics. And that's what the Christian is. I fall short, you might say. But isn't it your overarching desire that I want to be like my Father in heaven? That's what godliness is. It's like God. We're to be obedient children. We're not to conform to the evil desires of our past. In Romans, Paul says, don't conform to the world around you. And Peter's saying, don't conform to the evil within you. And John would say, don't conform to the world. We fight the world, the flesh, and the devil. They all want us to conform to something besides God. We are born again. But it doesn't mean that we leave the ugliness of our sin behind. Clint talked about it in Sunday school class. Although we're converted, we're regenerated, we're born again, we still have a sinful nature. And her heart is still full of that desire. My dad was a recovered alcoholic. Um, I think it was the year after Sarah and I got married that he uh, had a experience that I won't go into, and he gave up alcohol. But uh, I was talking to him one day, and I said, Well, Dad, I'm proud of you. How long's it been? He said, 38 years. I said, I think you've made it. He said, I sure hope so. He was still fighting the battle. He understood it was a daily battle. He still had these urges. And don't you still have these urges? You, don't you have, don't you realize your heart is deceitfully wicked? Who can understand it? Do you have to fight coveting? When somebody besides you gets a new vehicle or moves in a great big house, takes a big trip, don't you want to exaggerate the truth to make yourself look good? Don't you want to disobey authority every now and then and drive 68 and a 55? I got a warning, but anyway. <laughs> don't you have to fight being greedy? I mean, don't you still sometimes want the biggest piece of pie? Don't you have a hard time not wanting to get revenge or get even? So let's move on. Holiness is also wise. And I could say it like this. Holiness isn't dumb. Or you could say it like this. Sin is really stupid. Sin is not very smart. You know that holiness is walking in wisdom and wisdom is walking in the way of the Lord. 
But, you know, can you can you honestly say, you know, I really do understand that holiness is a wise way to live and this sinful lifestyle, although it's attractive and TV makes it look nice and everything, it's really stupid. Confession time. I have had too much to drink twice in my life. Uh, one time was in high school and one time was uh, when I registered here at Delta State. And the reason I mention that is because both times I woke up the next morning and I say, people do this all the time? And I was able to tell my kids, if you drink too much more than once or twice, it's not only sinful, it is stupid. And can you draw the line and say a lot of sin is like that? As it's graduation day and we hear a lot of speeches, do you ever remember any of them? I remember Bio's graduation speaker. It happened so fast. And that wasn't it was what? That's one of three that I remember. But I remember Ricky Jones talking to our senior at a senior high breakfast. And Ricky said this. I don't remember the passage. I don't remember the context. I don't know. I don't remember anything. But he said, I want to be the one to tell you that one stupid mistake can ruin your life. Just take drinking while driving. I have known three or four people that because of drinking too much and unwisely getting behind the wheel, spent a great deal of time in parchment. One stupid mistake. Holiness is wise, and it understands God's laws and God's ways are full of wisdom. Holiness is, is valuable. It's not empty, Peter says. It's not empty. You know that your sinful way of life was empty. It was vain. It was worthless. It was no value. You've got it handed down to you, but once you looked at it, it was really, you know, nothing to it. Now, I cannot think of uh, emptiness or worthlessness without thinking about Solomon. Solomon was a king who had all the money and all the power and all the authority in the world, and he, he got everything he wanted. You know, he got houses and built gardens, and he built pools, and he built aqueducts, and he got male servants and female servants, and he got concubines and wives, and he got all the food he wanted. And what did he say it was? It was empty. It was empty. Quoting the old hymn that really isn't a hymn, my world is empty without you. That's what the Bible really teaches. That without Christ you live an empty, restless life. Going fast because I'm running out of time. But I want you to thirdly, to hope is looks sets itself on grace, hope sets itself on holiness, and hope sets itself on the Lamb, on the Lamb of God. Uh, we're redeemed. God is our Father. He's our, he's our judge. We are to uh, live our lives there with, the NIV translates that, not just fear, but reverent fear. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said there's a great difference between servile fear and filial fear, a fear that's in a family, 
the fear of a servant is out of getting a beaten or being locked up or killed or mistreated. It's a dread. It's a terror. It's a it's a shaking fear. But the fear that a child has for a father he loves is is the best way to describe it. Luther says, and that fear develops over the years. I can remember that when I was under the influence of bad friends in junior high. And we were riding our bikes on College Street, and there were several big trees that had big plums, and we were going to borrow some. And while we were borrowing those plums, we trampled uh, some flowers, and we thought we were in trouble for the plums. We were in trouble for the flowers. And after dealing with Mary James and the Flower Committee, I understand that better now. But I can remember my dad talking on the phone. Timmy did what? He did, he did this while well, I'm going, oh no. And I prayed like I was asleep. He snatched those covers back and he gave me a understanding of what I did was wrong. And I didn't trample any more flowers for a long time. But that fear changed. The later on in life when my dad sobered up and I grew up, the most important thing I had on this earthly dimension was to have the praise of my dad. I didn't want to disappoint him. And that's the idea here. It's not that you're afraid of being hurt by God. You're afraid of hurting God, of grieving him. That's that fear. So you set your eyes on the lamb. You weren't redeemed out of that empty way of life. You weren't made God's child uh, you weren't any of those things without the Lamb of God. The precious blood of the Lamb of God. What was Peter thinking about? Well, let me give you several options as we close. Peter might have been thinking about when John the Baptist saw Jesus from a distance. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Was he thinking about that? Here was the Messiah that Jesus takes away the sin of the world. He's died to understand that. Or was he thinking about Isaiah? Where Isaiah 53 talks about Jesus was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And he bore our sins on the tree. On, on the tree and his, our punishment was put on him. And by his... By his works, we're, we're given peace. Was he thinking about Isaiah 53? Was he thinking about the atonement? The day of atonement where they took a lamb and they, they prayed over that lamb and put the sins of the people on that lamb. And then they took the lamb into the Holy of Holies and they sacrificed that lamb and poured that blood. And by that, your sins were covered. Was he thinking about the day of atonement? Or was he thinking about Passover? Was he thinking about when they were coming out of Egypt or wanting to come out of Egypt? The last, the last plague was the one of Passover where they took a lamb into their house and they fed it and kept it for a few days and then they sacrificed that lamb and they put the blood on the doorpost. And because the blood was on the doorpost, the wrath of God passed by. Or was he thinking about Genesis 22? When Abraham took his son, his only son, up on Mount Moriah. 
And his son says to him, Dad, we got the fire. Where's the lamb? Abraham says, the Lord will provide. There was a ram caught in the bushes and the Lord provided. And on that same hill, approximately on that same hill, the Lamb of God was crucified. And His precious blood was poured out for us. That what can wash away our sin? Nothing. It's reading it's precious. It's nothing else can do it but the blood of Jesus. We don't have this hymn, and it's a more of a modern hymn, but I think it really does summarize what our feelings are when we think about the Lamb of God. It's written by Twyla Paris. Your only son knows sin to hide, but you have sent him from your side to walk upon this guilty side and to become the Lamb of God. O Lamb of God, sweet Lamb of God, I love the Holy Lamb of God. O wash me in His precious blood, my Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Your gift of love they crucified. They laughed and scorned Him as He died. The humble King they named a fraud and sacrificed the Lamb of God. I was so lost I should have died, but you have brought me to your side to be led by your staff and rod, and to be called a child of God. O Lamb of God, O sweet Lamb of God, I love the Holy Lamb of God. O wash me in His precious blood, my Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Let's pray. Father, the blood of Christ is so precious to us, so valuable, so powerful, so magnetic. We thank you that you, Lord Jesus, came as that lamb to take away our sin. And we set our hope on you, not just that you came, but that you're coming again. And we set our hope on the fact that as your children, we expect and long and look for grace. Because those who believe in Christ, there's no condemnation. And maybe some have never trusted, hoped in Christ. Never ask for the Lamb of God to wash away their sin. May they do it today. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.